is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today we have the privilege of speaking with Eric Rubin, who's the Assistant Professor of Law at Southern Methodist University, the Dead Men's School of Law. Eric has written extensively on the regulation of weapons and violence and how that regulation intersects with self-defense and the Second Amendment. And we're also joined by two of my partners, Dwayne Lyons, who's a partner in our Los Angeles office, and Stacey Lindor, who's a partner in our Boston office. And our subject today is we're talking about gun control, gun regulation, gun safety, whatever you want to call it. It's been in the news a lot lately, particularly because of a recent United States Supreme Court decision, the Bruin decision, where the United States Supreme Court found unconstitutional a New York gun safety law, specifically the law requiring a license to carry concealed weapons in public places, found that that law was unconstitutional. And that's been in the news a lot. And we want to talk about the background to that and the state of gun regulation in this country now. I mean, I don't know about anybody else, but this is a subject that just makes me crazy. I can't read about the violence, like the the recent incidents in Texas, which happened just before this decision came down, without getting very, very upset. But before speaking about this decision, Professor Rubin, perhaps you could kind of lay the uh, groundwork for us by telling us in general, before this decision, what was the landscape about gun regulation in the United States? Where did things stand before the Supreme Court decision came down? There are many firearms restrictions, and there have been firearms restrictions going all the way back into the the 1600s and the 1700s in the United States. Firearms and firearm regulation go hand in hand. Most of the firearm policy that we've seen since 1789, when the Constitution was written, has been at the state and local level and not the federal level, even though federal gun regulation is what we tend to hear talked about in the national media and is often the subject of debate. And of course, that's recently the case because there is a new bipartisan gun law, um, which I'm happy to talk about. But most of the regulation has always been at the state and local level. Every state in the country regulates firearms to some extent. They regulate who can possess them. They regulate when people can possess and carry firearms, what types of firearms and other weapons are lawful to possess and so on. And there's great variety across the states. And I'm happy to focus in on any particular category of firearm regulation, but there are lots of them out there. As I understand it, there was a time when there was a consensus that people should not have access to certain kinds of weapons, like machine guns, I think, were outlawed in 1934. And almost 30 years ago, Congress passed an assault weapons ban has that consensus disappeared? Well, it is true that there is there is consensus that there are certain types of firearms that are simply too dangerous for civilians to have and carry and use. Um, in the 1930s, as you mentioned, the federal government, and this is the first major federal gun safety law in, in the country's history, the federal law imposed a registration requirement and a tax on automatic weapons. And in 1986, the federal government went further and prohibited the domestic manufacture of, for, of additional automatic weapons. And as a result, the number of automatic weapons or machine guns that are in circulation is much lower than it would be if those gun laws hadn't been passed. 
And the Supreme Court in its recent decisions has emphasized that it doesn't purport to cast doubt on the regulation of automatic weapons. You mentioned the assault weapon ban from the 1990s, and that was in effect in, uh, for 10 years. And some states have continued to prohibit the possession or the purchase of assault weapons. That's a, a controversial issue, I think, from state to state. And one of the things that the gun rights folks will say is that assault weapons, what are known as assault weapons, are some of the most popular rifles in the United States these days. Did there come a point in the uh, recent past where the whole idea of gun regulation started to lose some ground to certain interpretations of the Second Amendment that you know, suddenly the regulations that have been thought in the past to have been perfectly appropriate and justifiable then came under scrutiny and were some instances struck down as unconstitutional. It's, has there been a movement in that direction over the last, say, 30, 40 years? Yes, there has. And, um, it, you know, it's it's interesting to note here that the first time that a federal appellate court ever struck down a gun law on Second Amendment grounds was in 2008, over 200 years after the Second Amendment was enacted. That's really that remarkable. Case, I didn't realize that that recently. What what case was that? That was District of Columbia versus Heller, and it was a case that dealt with uh, a ban on handguns and an effective um, prohibition on enabling firearms for, for use in the District of Columbia. And it was that case where the Supreme Court for the first time said that the Second Amendment, which reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And in Heller, for the first time, the, the Supreme Court said that the Second Amendment is not about the preservation of a well-regulated militia primarily, but instead is about private self-defense. And it said that it's unconstitutional to prohibit handguns in the District of Columbia. And that case marked the culmination of a decades-long effort to, to transform the understanding of the Second Amendment from what had been the federal court consensus, which was that it was about the militia, into a, a, an understanding of the Second Amendment that's actually about private citizens having weapons for self-defense against common criminals and the like. Um, and, and that was a major push by the, the gun rights movement um, and by uh, that caught on in scholarship and ultimately culminated in a changed understanding within the judiciary. Um, I think it's worth mentioning while we're talking about Heller that even before Heller, even before the Supreme Court um, emboldened the Second Amendment as a tool to strike down gun laws. It was still hard to pass a lot of gun regulation, not because of constitutional law necessarily, just because of gun politics in the United States. Gun politics have been a chief obstacle, a main obstacle for passing a lot of the gun regulations that even a majority of Americans tend to support. Yeah, I, I understand in the past, the National Rifle Association in particular has been a very powerful force opposing gun regulation, but they may not have the traction now that they once had. They've had a lot of problems themselves. It's true. There's certainly some lawsuits. There's a bankruptcy proceeding that the NRA is involved in right now. The attorney general's office in New York state is investigating and, and uh, potentially prosecuting 
the NRA. And so those certainly set back that institution and some of its power. But I would say that a lot of the power of the NRA hasn't necessarily been from um, the, the funds that it has, though that's certainly a component, but it's been from the fact that there are a lot of single issue gun owners out there who have been mobilized by the NRA to call politicians and to, to help prevent the passage of new gun laws. And those voters are, are out there still. And there are some new organizations that have been popping up to, to fill the vacuum that has been left given the NRA's uh, recent issues. So, so it is true that the NRA seems to be weaker right now, um, but that might not necessarily translate into a lot of new opportunities, depending on how the rest of the field shapes up. Yeah, it does seem like there's a large portion of the population that seems to have strong feelings about individuals' ownership and a, a, an ability to own and, and carry weapons. But I, I went back after this recent decision, I went actually went back and read that Heller decision that you referred to. And I was really struck it seemed like you know that, that militia clause, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the safety of a free state, gives such an opportunity uh, to see a freedom to regulate private use of guns having nothing to do with militias. And I have to say, in reading Scalia's opinion, it just seemed, he just seemed to me, and this is my personal opinion, a really strained effort to read that out of the Second Amendment, or to read it in a way that it really had no meaning. Dwayne, Stacey Lynn, I don't know whether you have a different reaction to that or any thoughts on that. Well, I mean, John, I, I think my thinking on this has been it's somewhat result-oriented, um, and that you know there is uh, members of the court who just view guns and gun rights completely differently than people in, in large metropolitan areas. And so uh, I think it's just result-oriented. The language in there about the well-regulated militia seems to be something that you could use as a touchstone to say, that's why the Second Amendment exists. And to just completely write it out of existence or to disregard it just seems to be, you know, just wrong and and but it's result-oriented it's you know if it's a problem to have that language in there and so it's, it seems easier to ignore it but you think about uh justice scalia in particular as uh, a justice who looks at the original intent uh that we should be looking backwards and i it didn't really seem to me that that was the effort here you know it was kind of a parsing of the language and how does it what does this phrase modify this or can it be read differently i mean that that was my reaction to it that it was it was kind of a a blinkered opinion and not so much an opinion that was seeking to understand what the original intent was i don't know whether stacy lynn you have any reaction to that or professor rubin well i think what's interesting to me looking back at heller is picking up on what professor rubin touched on there is a lot that it doesn't cover and there's a lot that the supreme court still has said they would not cast doubt on with respect to regulation. And so I think a big question in my mind coming out of Heller and now Bruin is why isn't there more being done in the spaces where the Supreme Court has said it can be done? And what, what happens now in, with respect to thinking about these areas 
where there is no doubt that that there isn't a second amendment backstop that they that there is the ability of states to regulate where where should the focus be and where will it be i was just going to say i think that i think that both Dwayne and stacy make real stacy lynn make really good points um about the heller decision and 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 your interpretation as well john and i think that you know one of the things that heller did was it transformed the understanding and it, in essence read out that the first half of the second amendment and it was in the name of finding the original understanding the original understanding of the second amendment back in 1791 is contested and disputed there are a lot of historians out there I, uh, you know, I, I would put money that a majority of American historians disagree with the interpretation of the Second Amendment that um, will disagree with the original understanding of the Second Amendment as it appeared in Justice Scalia's opinion. And to the point that it might be ends oriented, I think it, it bears mentioning that there were nine justices who heard the case in, in District of Columbia v. Heller. There were two opinions that were searching for the original understanding. Five justices signed on to Justice Scalia's opinion and four signed on to a dissent by Justice Stevens that was as historical. They reached diametrically opposed outcomes or conclusions about the original understanding. And the split was perfectly ideological in that the five conservative justices signed on to a historical understanding that oriented the Second Amendment around private individual self-defense. And the four dissenting justices wanted to say that they, they said, in their opinion, that the original understanding was that this is still about service in a militia, which had been the way that had been understood by the federal courts for the previous few generations. Um, so I think that there's a lot there. And as Stacey Lynn noted, the opinion also went to great extends to try to reassure Americans that it doesn't cast doubt on a lot of regulations, that it doesn't cast doubt on the prohibition of firearms by those who are mentally ill or those who have felony convictions, doesn't prohibit the regulation of guns in sensitive places such as government buildings and schools or the regulation of dangerous and unusual weapons. Um, all of these carve-outs in the Heller opinion proved to be very important in the years after Heller when, according to my research, 90% of gun laws that were challenged were upheld. In other words, judges across the country of all ideological stripes that were following Heller and implementing the Second Amendment according to the way they thought it should be implemented after Heller upheld gun laws and rejected challenges to them. Of course, we're going to talk about Bruin, the recent opinion, and whether or not that changes things, and I think it probably does. Um, but those carve-outs, actually, uh, the carve-outs in Heller and the court's efforts to try to insulate gun regulation from challenge in the 2008 opinion signaled that a lot of gun control, even under this new understanding of, this, of the Second Amendment, was still perfectly constitutional. So let's just remind ourselves, it was a D.C. law relating to carrying weapons outside the home, or did it cover uh, possession of weapons in the home as well that was struck down? What was the it DC was regulation? It was just possession of fire of handguns in the home. So the Supreme Court did not have reason to opine in that case on the carrying of guns outside the home. And it was the outside the home component that was decided in this recent case out of New York. All right, so that brings us to the the recent case, the Bruin decision, and I mean, and that addressed the New York law about 
uh, carrying weapons outside uh, the home. I mean, could you, Professor Rubin, could you give us kind of a summary of what that decision, what was decided in Bruin? Sure. So the background of this case is that since 1913 in New York, going back over a century, if you want to carry a handgun concealed in public, and in New York, the only way that you can lawfully carry a handgun is concealed. In other words, concealed from public view, not openly carried on your hip so that everyone can see it. If you wanted to do that, you had to get a permit. And if you want to be able to carry a concealed handgun virtually anywhere in public, you have to show what the law calls proper cause. Proper cause means some heightened need for self-defense that separates you from the general public. So for example, you show that you've been stalked or that, um, that you carry a lot of money for your jobs or some other characteristic of your life or your circumstances that exposes you to increased threats. Just saying that you wanna have a gun in case you get attacked by a stranger would not be enough to satisfy this proper cause requirement and get a permit in New York. If you go back into the 1980s, most of the country either banned concealed carry or had one of these New York style laws. But over the course of the past few decades, the gun rights movement has made it a goal to loosen the requirements for carrying a concealed handgun. And so at the time of the Bruin case that was decided last month, there were seven or eight states, depending on how you count, that had New York style laws. And those states are home to about a quarter of Americans, about 80 million Americans. And the plaintiffs in, in, in this case tried to get a firearm permit to carry a gun virtually anywhere. They had no heightened need for self-defense, so they were denied an unrestricted permit. Instead, they got permits to carry their guns to, to work and in some other less populated places. And they challenged that determination along with the New York affiliate of the National Rifle Association and they said that it violated their Second Amendment rights. The Supreme Court, the ruling is that that proper cause requirement is in fact unconstitutional. And the way that the court got there, much like Heller, was through an interpretation of history and a search for historical analogs. And it's that methodological approach that actually I think might be one of the, the biggest uh, outcomes from the case in terms of how it gets implemented in the future. How so? Touch, I mean, oh. Go ahead, Stacey Lynn, sorry. Sorry, can we touch on that a little more, Professor? I, I was interested both in, in Heller and in Bruin, we've seen a lot of historical analysis about what the various parties in the court argue are the relevant regulations that existed at the times that they're looking at. Is there more to mine there, or at this point, has have, have people done sort of the deepest dive, or, or at what point do we start to turn to history and historians, in, in every case, to be searching for comparable analogous regulations to see if there's something else that still existed at the time? So, Stacey Lynn, you ask a really good question, and I think it goes to what the Supreme Court is saying courts have to do and litigants have to do in future Second Amendment cases and also the state of the historical research. So before this case, courts were applying a conventional means and scrutiny approach to deciding Second Amendment disputes. What that means is they were asking ultimately for if the Second Amendment was implicated at all, which was a historical inquiry, history mattered even before this opinion, then courts were generally saying, does the government have a really strong interest in regulating and 
does the law that's being challenged sufficiently further that interest? That's a high level overview. It's a simplification, but that's the general gist of it. And one of the important things about that was that they were thinking about modern day gun violence, modern day gun violence problems, and modern day solutions to that gun violence. What the Supreme Court did in Bruin is it said that that focus on modern day gun violence is inappropriate. That instead, to shore up a Second Amendment, uh, a law challenge on Second Amendment grounds, once it's determined that the Second Amendment comes into play based on a textual analysis, once it's in play, then the government has to find historical analogs in order to justify modern day gun regulation. In essence, says that modern day gun violence is not all that relevant or not relevant at all to resolving Second Amendment challenges. Stacey Lynn, your question is, well, what do we know about historical gun laws? There are lots of them out there, but one of the big problems is that it's unclear after this opinion how courts are supposed to do this analysis without being anachronistic. Times have changed dramatically. At the time of the, the founding, which the court says is the most important point in time for evaluating historical analogs, the Second Amendment got enacted in 1791, Muzzle-loading firearms were the firearms that people had. You couldn't carry them around loaded because there was too much of a risk of misfire that they would just go off spontaneously. Lots of places required you to take your black powder that you used for these guns and store it separately from the guns because it was highly flammable and could cause fires. Maybe somebody who's very proficient could load their muzzle-loading musket three times in a minute, but the average gun owner probably would need more time. It was a very different situation. We didn't have modern day gang violence. Firearms have advanced significantly as have firearm problems. And one of the issues that courts are going to have is that when you're facing a modern day gun regulation, like take for instance, red flag laws that allow somebody who is, is manifesting a, a risk of harm to themselves or to others, and therefore the police can seize firearms for a short period of time. The problems that led to that, a suicide problem with firearms, uh, mass shootings that have become increasingly common just didn't exist back then. So what is the analog for addressing the constitutionality of these red flag laws or frankly felon in possession laws or any of these laws? Um, at the time of the framing back in 1791, there were restrictions on the possession of firearms by Native Americans or those who did not sign loyalty oaths, but there were nothing like today's felon in possession laws or other restrictions. So one of the challenges, and I think one of the oddities of, of this is that if a court wants to uphold the felon in possession law today, what do they do? Do they say these restrictions on Native Americans are a sufficient historical analog because at the time Native Americans were viewed as a threat to the public and anyone who is deemed a threat to the public can therefore be disarmed. Same with the, you know, the, the, those who wouldn't sign a loyalty oath, or do they need a closer fit? The court's not all that clear about what sorts of historical analogs are going to be relevant. And I think what I predict will happen is courts are going to shift the level of generality. They'll zoom way out if they want to uphold the law, because everything is relevant to everything else at some level and then zoom in and say, okay, you need a closer fit if they want to strike down a law, which is what happened in essence in the Bruin case. This goes back to Dwayne's point about 
ends oriented judicial decision making. Does it seem to be the case that only 18th century historical analogs are relevant? It's a good question, John, and it's unclear after this case. One of the concurrences by Justice Barrett pointed out that the Supreme Court did not decide whether or not regulation around the time of the 14th Amendment is an appropriate focal point for the historical analysis, which would be 1868, or whether it's got to be 1791. There's some confusion, I think, after this opinion about what history matters. It also is the case that both in Heller and this Bruin decision, the justices in the majority look to regulations after 1791 to try to reverse engineer what the common understanding was in 1791. They basically reason that if people in 1810 or 1820 or 1830 passed a gun law and it withstood constitutional scrutiny or was widely adopted and enforced, then that that suggests that at the framing in 1791, the people would have agreed that this particular regulation would be constitutional. Of course, of course, historians will tell you that the country changed dramatically and became a lot more individualistic and changed in other ways into the Jacksonian era and into the 1800s. Um, but that's basically what the court did. And in this case, most of the analysis was going through centuries of firearm regulation and weapons regulations. The majority took one at a time and said this one was too old, that this one is too recent, this one is not a close enough fit, this one might not have been enforced enough, played whack-a-mole with these historical regulations. And after dozens of pages of doing so said, alas, there is no sufficient analog for this century-old New York law. It therefore is unconstitutional. It's remarkable if you're if you're just looking for historical analogs, then I guess it's utterly irrelevant that guns and weapons are the number one cause of death for children in this country today. That's irrelevant, I guess, to the analysis. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, one of the confusing aspects of this opinion is that the core, because of the Breyer dissent, Breyer dissented and said that this new standard of looking for historical analogs is, is going to be incredibly indeterminate and hard to apply. And the court said in response, well, what you do if societal problems have shifted is you have to look at the historical analog and you have to ask how and why was it enacted? And then you look at the modern law and you ask how and why was the modern law enacted? And then I suppose you compare the two. So perhaps in assessing the how and why of modern day regulations, you would consider modern day evidence, but how exactly that maps onto the historical analog or relates or is used to determine constitutionality is far from clear. One of the ironic things about this opinion is that the court said that its history only test is more, quote, more legitimate and more administrable, end quote than the means and scrutiny that courts have been applying to decide Second Amendment cases and also used for First Amendment cases and equal protection cases and other areas of constitutional law. The court describes its approach as, quote, straightforward historical inquiry, end quote. But it's hard to see how this is going to be straightforward, how it's going to be more legitimate or more administrable. One of the effects, I think, is that as I mentioned before, 90% of gun laws have been upheld applying conventional constitutional analysis over the past 13 years. One thing that this opinion does 
is it in essence grants a very changed federal judiciary a redo on all of those gun laws that have been upheld, applying a new test with new judges doing the analysis. So we're now in a world where we're going to be arguing that trigger locks or storage rules, for example, or any other safety measures are appropriate and not a violation because, for example, as you pointed out, Professor, back in 1790, there was a law requiring your gunpowder to be stored separate from your muzzle. Precisely. Yes, that was like the framing era version of a safe storage law. Got to separate your gunpowder and your gun. You got to store your gunpowder in a certain way because it could start a fire. And, you know, and, and, and what I imagine judges will do if they want to strike down modern safe storage laws, which require a firearm to be locked in a stored container or disabled if it's not on your body, is, is they'll say, well, the whys of these two laws were just too different. The why of the 1790 Boston regulation on gunpowder was to stop fires. The why of the modern law is to stop children from accidentally discharging a firearm or somebody or, or a troubled teenager who has suicidal ideations from accessing the firearm. The whys are just too different. Therefore, the analog test fails. On the other hand, you could zoom out the level of generality and say, that the, the 1790s law were to prevent unintentional deaths and injuries. Modern day laws are to prevent unintentional deaths or injuries. And therefore the analog test satisfies the requirements of this Bruin decision. The law is constitutional. Judges are gonna have a lot of discretion in how they do this. So in, in practical terms, do you think that the Bruin decision has actually changed the landscape in terms of what types of regulations can be upheld from a constitutional matter, or are we just, is it just too murky at this point to say? It's too murky, I think, to say. I was, I was doing a webinar last week and an advocate asked, well, what should legislators do now? Should they all of a sudden become armchair historians and start evaluating history of the regulations that they think could enhance public safety? Whereas in the past, they just had to think about what sorts of solutions could work. And I think that that would be an unfortunate and colossal waste of time um, for policymakers who are trying to do right by their constituents. You know, another aspect of this opinion that is prompting a lot of discussion in Second Amendment circles is that two of the justices, two of the six justices in the majority, and mind you, like Heller, the historical analysis and the majority and the dissenting opinions broke down perfectly on ideological lines. This goes back to the means or the ends uh, focused point that Dwayne made earlier. And one of the two, the, the two concurring justices, uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh wrote an opinion that cut and pasted the language from Heller that Stacey Lynn had mentioned before that said that the opinion does not cast doubt on longstanding regulations like challenges to felons and possession laws and, um, and, and, and prohibitions on possession of firearm by the mentally ill, taking guns into sensitive places, bans on dangerous and unusual weapons. They cast all that language in and says that that language is still secure, still holds, 
and those two justices were necessary for the six justice majority. Those laws that are in the, that paragraph don't necessarily have clear historical analogs, depending on how you do the analog test. So all of this is to say that there's a lot of uncertainty, John, to your point about how this is going to apply, whether or not this is going to end up in striking down a lot of laws and how it's going to affect policymaking going forward. I have a question, Eric. Um, are, are you familiar with, are there any historical analogs where, you know, that proscribed firearms possession by people? I mean, going back into like, you know, if you watch old Westerns, the sheriff would come in whenever the bad guys would ride into town and say, okay, this is a, a town where you have to leave your guns with me when you check in or things like that. Are there, are there historical analogs where people were not allowed to have firearms in, in certain parts of the country? Yeah, so there are. And this was one of the, the aspects of this opinion that was interesting is that the court basically minimized or, um, or distinguished all of those historical laws. When it comes to carrying guns, you go back all, all the way back to the 1300s in England and find pretty strict restrictions on carrying firearms in public. You couldn't bring guns into fairs and markets back in medieval times. There were certain towns, as you mentioned, like Tombstone, um, and, and, and there were others that just banned firearms altogether once you entered the town. And there were other restrictions. There were strict prohibitions on concealed carry. Texas, where I live now, had one of the strictest gun laws. In 1871, Texas passed a law that banned the public carry, open or concealed, of pistols and other weapons. If you were caught carrying, you could uh, be prosecuted for violating this law, and you had an affirmative defense that said that you were only carrying because you had a heightened need for self-defense. So it paralleled, in interesting ways, the proper cause requirement in New York. And what the court did with all of these regulations is it distinguished them or minimized them. So the Texas law, for instance, basically cast aside in a few sentences as an outlier that should not inform the understanding in the 1800s of what the right to keep and bear arms meant, even though that law was challenged and upheld on Texas Constitution and was in effect all the way into the 1990s when uh, Governor, then Governor Bush, passed a law that basically started loosening Texas gun laws. So there are restrictions out there. There are historical laws. There are thousands of them. It's just unclear how they're going to inform the decision-making under this new history-only test. What I'm gathering is that uh, there are certain areas of regulation that are that are still fine, like if you're a felon, if you're uh, mentally you know, handicapped, presumably waiting periods while those things are investigated are, are still proper, presumably age limits are still proper. Uh, I'm not sure about machine guns. I don't know whether there's constitutional protection for machine guns, but my takeaway from Heller and Bruin is you can't require a license for me to have a gun in my home. You can't require me to have a gun and carry it around with me outside my home. Now, that's with certain exceptions. That seems to leave a lot of freedom to have guns and to carry guns in this country. I mean, am I am I missing the point here? Yeah, no, well, I mean, one of the things that we, we have seen over the past few weeks is that the legislative response to Bruin, I think, is an indication of where the future is going. Legislators in places like California and New York aren't going to throw up their hands and say, okay, we're just gonna not, we're not, we're gonna stop worrying 
about the gun violence epidemic. We're going to stop worrying about all the carnage in the cities, the mass shootings that are on the rise and everything else. They're going to continue regulating. And Bruin, even though it struck down a very old law in New York, tried to make clear that gun law is not per se unconstitutional. And what happened in New York after this opinion is that Governor Hochul passed a new law, signed into effect a new law that rather than requiring proper cause is requiring increased training. In fact, before Bruin, there was no training requirement under New York state law to carry a handgun in public to get the concealed carry permit. And now there's going to be a classroom training. There's going to be live fire training. There's even going to be a proficiency requirement. Unclear what that's going to be. You have to hit the target 70 or 80% of the time um, from a certain number of feet away. And on top of that, there are new sensitive places that are getting designated as no gun zones, such as the subway. And another interesting thing that New York State did was it said that private property is presumptively gun-free unless you have the permission of the private landowner. I find this to be a really fascinating um, and, and, and interesting shift in, in policy, though it's always been the case that private landowners and proprietors can decide for themselves whether or not guns are permitted on their lands, absent some law stating otherwise. At the time that the Second Amendment was enacted, private property was sacrosanct. You have to read the Second Amendment with that backdrop, against that backdrop. So I don't see anything problematic about that shift uh, under the Second Amendment, though, like everything else, it will get challenged anew. So to your question, John, I think there is a lot of room still for gun regulation, even on public carry. There's just going to be a lot more litigation. Litigators, like the three of you, if you want to get involved in this space, are going to be busy because one thing that Bruin did is it invited a new round of litigation, just like Heller had before. But just like after Heller, courts were frequently upholding challenge gun laws. I'd expect that courts are going to be upholding challenge gun laws afterward. It's just going to be applying a different methodology. And maybe, um, likely, there will be some gun laws that would fall under this methodology that would have been upheld under the prior one. I mean, Congress passed new gun control legislation after the Bruin decision. And what what did that cover? Um, it, it's, it's an interesting contrast. At the same time that the Bruin decision came down in the Supreme Court, quite impressively expanded the scope of the Second Amendment. There was the first bipartisan federal gun safety law passed in three decades. Um, this is the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. It includes a number of different provisions, but it, uh, among other things, it includes billions of dollars in funding for mental health services and also state red flag laws. So states can have money and can get guidance from the federal government on how to implement this innovation that has become quite popular and has bipartisan support um, across the country. It allows law enforcement to seize a firearm from somebody who is going through a uh, an acute period of distress where they might harm themselves or others and hold the firearms for a brief period of time. That's a civil proceeding. Um, and, and the federal law provides funding and guidance on how to implement those red flag laws. It also funds community violence prevention efforts across the country and includes some more direct regulation of firearms um, such as, for instance, clarifying that whereas right now, if you are convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, 
you can be prohibited from possessing a firearm, but that prohibition only applies to spouses and certain other close familial relations. One thing this law does is it closes what has been called the boyfriend loophole and says that dating partners, not just spouses, can be banned from possessing firearms if they engage in domestic violence against their dating partner. And this is, I think, very significant because half of intimate partner homicides in the United States are committed by dating partners, not by spouses. There are some other provisions as well, but this it was a bipartisan effort. And I think that's highly significant. In fact, 20-something Republican members of Congress voted to pass this law. Do you think there's a potential that if the Republicans gain control of both houses of Congress and the presidency, that there could be a federal law prohibiting the states from passing laws restricting gun ownership? It's certainly possible. Um, the Re Republican caucus over the past decade or two has, especially at the federal level, has been consistently against gun regulation. This Bipartisan Safer Communities Act is a, a huge exception to what has been a stubborn refusal to even consider any gun control measures in recent years. I think a, a, an example of this, a, this refusal to um, support gun safety measures, I think is after the Las Vegas shooting, when there was discussion about banning bump stocks, these devices that can convert effectively a semi-automatic weapon into a fully automatic weapon. There's no self-defense use for these bump stocks that were used to kill um, dozens and dozens of people in Las Vegas. And yet still, the Republican caucus at the federal level said they did not support a new gun law to ban these bump stocks. At the same time, there is an appetite to pass further laws that loosen gun rights amongst the Republican caucus. Whether or not there can be enough support for something like that at the federal level is yet to be seen. I think that one of the laws that gets talked about sometimes is a concealed carry reciprocity bill that would require states across the country to honor the concealed carry permits from people from other states. In other words, in California, you would have to honor the concealed carry permits from places like Florida and other states that make it very, very easy to get a concealed carry permit. There's still a filibuster, of course, and it's unclear whether or not uh, the, the, the Senate could reach 60 votes for something like that. But, um, but, but that's the sort of thing that I could imagine seeing if the power in, at the federal level shifted from Democratic control to Republican control. I mean, just seeing how that might play out in my mind, I, I, I could go to Florida, I could go to Texas, uh, get a concealed carry permit, and I can go to a major inner city and go around and have a concealed weapon, you know, under that law that were adopted. Yeah, I mean, it, it raises all sorts of questions. And obviously, the ability of people from one state to go to another state, get a concealed carry permit that they wouldn't be able to get in their home state and then carry back in their home state, whether or not that would be carved out, open question. But no doubt, this, like many other laws that have loosened the regulation of firearms in public, will result in more people carrying guns in public places. Just what we need. So, Dwayne, you're involved in uh, some litigation here in Los Angeles relating to ghost guns. Could you tell us about that? On behalf of uh, the people of the state of California using uh, Business and Professions Code 17200, 
the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office in conjunction with uh, our firm and a public interest group called uh, Every Town for Gun Safety have filed suit against Polymer 80. Polymer 80 is the largest manufacturer of ghost guns in the country. And um, what is a ghost gun, by the way? So a ghost gun is a gun that can be purchased over the internet. It can be assembled with the parts that you get through the internet. It is not, uh, has no serial number, has no means of being traced, and it has become the choice weapon for criminals around the country now. Law enforcement, the seizures of, of firearms have increased, uh, the percentage of ghost guns have increased uh, uh, in terms of how many of them are being you know, seized every year. And Polymer 80 is the largest manufacturer of ghost guns. Of the, the firearms that were seized that were ghost guns, I think in 2020, Polymer 80 manufactured somewhere above 80% of those, or, or at least the guns came from kits associated with Polymer 80. So we're seeking injunctive relief on behalf of the people of the state of California to, to eliminate the practice of being able to, over the internet or to purchase a kit that would allow the owner to assemble a gun and uh, then the gun would not have any of the you know, prophylactics that, that you would get if you went into a gun shop. It wouldn't come with any safety device. Uh, it wouldn't have a serial number, it wouldn't be registered. There'd be no uh, ability for law enforcement to trace the gun. And as I said before, they become extremely problematic and, um, and have become the choice weapon for, for criminals across the country. And what is the claim exactly in the case? And what's the relief that you're seeking? Under the Business and Professions Code, that outlaws unlawful, unfair, and fraudulent uh, practices. In addition, there's a public nuisance claim. And the unlawful aspect is that we allege that selling these guns across state lines violates federal law because the guns don't uh, have certain safety features that guns that you would purchase through a gun shop would. For example, you have to have a storage device when you buy a gun, a handgun, and, and obviously these don't come with that. In addition, uh, there's a, a claim that Polymerity is alleged to inform its customers that these guns are lawful under federal law, and we allege that they are not lawful under federal law. And so there's a fraudulent aspect to our complaint there as well. And then finally, we allege that the sale of guns, uh, of these types of guns into California creates a public nuisance because in addition, they violate California law. California has some specific laws relating to um, how guns can be uh, shipped into the state of California. And, and so we allege that there is a, a public nuisance that's being created by the sale of these weapons. And we're seeking injunctive relief and obviously civil penalties as well. So that case is set for trial in March of 2023. And the defendant has appeared and is defending and... The defendant has appeared. We're in litigation, uh, uh, conducting discovery, and um, you know we'll be taking depositions soon. And uh, we're looking forward to a, a trial date in, in March of, of next year. But uh, yeah, the defendant is, uh, is fully defending the case. And, and you know we're in full-blown litigation mode on this one. Are, are they raising a, a Second Amendment defense? There have been a number of motions challenging uh, this lawsuit early. I don't think they've raised a, a pure Second Amendment defense, but they have a, a challenged our ability to bring this law. So far, all of their motions have failed. You know, they filed a demur at the beginning of the case. They filed a subsequent motion midway through, and I suspect that you know we'll be facing mo you know motions and potentially a dispositive motion that they might bring you know as we get closer to trial. But right now, 
we're in discovery and you know we're going to be uh, trying to get information about their sales, who they ship to, to demonstrate that you know these guns are being shipped to people who either don't qualify or there's no background information on them, and they're sold to people who are just not able to have guns. So you know that's sort of one of the things we're looking into in this case. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. A any uh, any concluding comments? I mean, I you know as I said earlier, I I uh, I find this subject. Uh, just really, really discouraging uh, the level of gun violence in this country and the way the United States stands out in the world with our utter failure to be able to deal with this problem. Is there any uh, light at the end of the tunnel, Professor? Uh, if, if we're going to solve this, what do you think is the is the direction where we're going to find a solution? Well, I, you know, I, I think that there is a, a lot, there's obviously a lot that's discouraging right now if, if you're looking at gun violence numbers and some of the, the stalled efforts to regulate firearms, either because of this recent Second Amendment decision or just because of the political climate in the country. But one of the things that's been very interesting to watch over the past decade or so is that the gun safety movement is totally invigorated in a way that it never was when Heller came down in 2008. So there had been decades where there was a massive imbalance of funding, of enthusiasm, of power between the gun rights movement and the gun safety movement. And over the past decade or so, a number of groups have popped up and have become major players on the policy front, including uh, the, the, the Giffords Center, which has a big presence, I know, in, in California, every town for gun safety, the student movement that has opened up after the shooting at Parkland in Florida. And so politics still are, in my view, the main obstacle to the passage of new gun safety laws. It's like politi politics rather than the Second Amendment. Politics rather than the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is often invoked in a rhetorical way and a bumper sticker type way that would never hold up in a court. It's politics before Heller came down in 2008, that were the main obstacle. And I think that it's still politics. And to the extent that there's a movement, a gun safety movement that is invigorated and is persuasive, especially for future generations of Americans, that could have a major impact. And of course, the, the, the work that you're doing with this ghost guns lawsuit is fascinating. And I think that there's a lot more energy at law firms across the country to start taking this on as a major issue in the same way that other issues were taken up in, in past decades. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Rubin, Professor Eric Rubin, Assistant Professor of Law at Southern Methodist University Deadman School of Law. Dwayne Lyons, Stacey Lindor, uh, my partners at Quinn Emanuel, thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by Podcast Partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.